Now I invite you to stand with me as I read our text this morning. We're picking up in verse 17 of chapter 2, reading down through verse 5 of chapter 3. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in Vain. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Coming up on a year and a half ago, we entered what has got to be the strangest time in modern American history, and not just American history, but really the strangest time around our planet as we have experienced the first truly global pandemic in several generations. Very few, if any of us, would have been alive the last time something like this happened to this extent in our world. And one of the things that we began hearing almost immediately last March, has it really been that long? <laughs> one of the things we began to hear almost immediately from talking heads on television, from uh, media types, athletes, musicians, actors, was this phrase. We are all in this together. Money was spent on commercials to ensure that we knew we're all in this together. Now, some of us probably doubted the sincerity of that statement. And as the, and as the pandemic wore on, it became very obvious that we were not necessarily all in this together. We live in such a politically divided culture and uh, tribalism has run so rampant in our world uh, that it did not take very long before fights of, over the origin of the virus, the legitimacy of numbers, whether to wear a mask or not, what businesses should be closed or not, and now on to whether one should receive a vaccine or not it became obvious that we weren't necessarily all in this together, at least culturally speaking. But this morning, I bring you a message of great joy and what should be for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, incredible hope. And that is why we can, and I think with a surety say, that our culture is not together. We, the people of God in this place, are together. We are together. We may not agree on everything. Some of those 
hot button cultural issues surrounding our pandemic. We found disagreement uh, with one another on, but we've never found disagreement to the point, at least that I'm aware of within our congregation, that we've become disagreeable. We've never tried to force our opinion on someone else or make them see things the way that we see them in some ungodly way. This is what we will see this morning from this text. A deep-seated desire that should be birthed in the heart of every Christian to be together with those of the faith. That the local church, this local expression of God's people here in this place that we call Nansman River Baptist Church, What makes us unique from the world is that no matter what rages around us, we should be able to look across this room today and say, we are in this together. Together, church. Together. This is what we will see pour forth from the heart of the Apostle Paul this morning. His desire to be together with the church in Thessalonica. We began with together in love, that it is the love of Christ that unifies us together and our love for one another that sustains that unity. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Just this first verse of this passage is rich in the language that the apostle uses. He he begins by saying, since we were torn away from you, that word that is translated from the original language, torn away in the English standard version of the Bible, which I uh, preach from, is only used one time in all of the New Testament. It's kind of a unique word. Its root word is where we ultimately get our word orphan from. If you have a copy of the New American Standard Bible or the New International Version of the English Bible, uh, it actually uses the word orphaned there. Paul says that we were orphaned from you, painting that word picture for English readers. This is the idea of this word that, that the, the separation from the mission team and this church there in Thessalonica was, was like a child being ripped away from his or her family. We were orphaned from you. We were torn away from you, brothers and the text says brothers. That's the translation. We've seen this before. It literally means all brothers and sisters, the people of the church. Paul is affectionate for them and mourns having to leave them in the fashion that he did. If you'll remember the story from Acts when this first took place, there, uh, there arose opposition to the church so much so that, that the church had to smuggle Paul and his cohort out of the city at night, send them away urgently and suddenly. And Paul looks back on that moment and says, we were torn away from you. But notice, for a short time, his desire in writing this, one of the primary reasons he's writing this letter is to reassure the the church, I'm coming back to you. I'm not just gonna write to you. I'm coming back to you. There's a reassurance of the apostles return here in this letter. He says, we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart. 
This is the idea that the apostle paints for this church. While they may have made it so that we could not stay and had to leave and carry on our missionary journey in other cities, you, the church, forever dwell in our hearts. They could take us away bodily, but they could not take away the love that we have for you. This is why I begin by saying we are together in love. Because this is the picture that Paul paints for us here at the beginning of this text. This picture of being torn away, the promise to return, but the guarantee that even though they are absent in body, they are present in their heart because they love the church. And congregation, our love for one another, our love for this local body, for these people that we are in congregation with should mirror this same kind of love that Paul had for this church. Because we are commanded over and over in the scriptures to love one another. Quickly, let me just walk through some of these commands for us. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus calls this a new command because people in his day were not very good at loving one another. And the love that they had for people was not seen as a sign of faith. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another. And the fact that you love one another is going to be a sign to people. It's how people are going to know that you are my disciples. Why has the church of God so readily walked away from this truth? That the way that we should be known in our world is by We should be known as people who love, particularly love one another. That we have great affection and great desire of love for the congregation. John, who recorded that teaching of Jesus, would later write a letter and in one way centered on the idea of love. In 1 John chapter 4, he writes this, Beloved, let us love one another. So he says, that's what beloved means, those I love love. That's what John says. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the love of God. Was, uh, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John, building on that teaching of Jesus that he had received so many years ago, says that love for one another is a direct extension of the love that God has shown us. That we love one another, as Jesus says, to, as a sign, as a demonstration of our faith in him. John says we love one another as a direct result of the fact that God loved us. And God loved us to the point, he says there in the middle of that passage, so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. What incredible love the Father has for us. 
So we then should have that kind of love for the brothers and sisters who are in Christ in our church. The apostle Paul, who here is writing 1 Thessalonians, also writes to the church in Rome and he instructs them on love. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let every uh, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. You know that kind of grudging love that sometimes happens amongst um, children, particularly like brothers and sisters, kind of, I, I love you, but I really don't love you. <laughs> sometimes that finds its way into the church. That'll find its way into the church and people say, oh no, I, I love my church, but I don't love my church. I, I, we, we, and so when Paul says here, uh, when he says, love one another with brotherly affection, he's not talking about that kind of, I love you because I have to love you kind of affection. Paul, Paul's saying, love one another as true brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Our goal should be to honor every single person that calls this their church. Because we love one another and we will do anything within our power to show that love. Letting our love be genuine. Not just something we say, not just that we say we love one another, but we actually practice our love for one another. This is the kind of love that Paul had for the church at Thessalonica. He felt he was torn away from them, but they couldn't, even though they could tear him away in body, they could never tear him away in heart because he was together with them in love. Then he writes, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Even though Paul has moved on to other cities and is planting other churches, he writes to this one and he says, oh, you have no idea how much I want to be back there with you. You have no idea how much I want to see you. Paul felt like his work obviously was not done in that place, that he had to leave too soon and he eagerly desired, he endeavored, he says, with great desire to see you face to face. Face to face. We went through this last year. There's a period of time that the church couldn't be together face to face. And for many of us, there was this deep-seated longing to gather together again. We couldn't necessarily put it into words, but we knew it was there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the physical presence of other believers is a source of incomparable joy and strength. When we gather together face to face, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the local congregation, loving one another, it builds us up with joy. It strengthens us in ways that nothing else can do. While Paul loved them in heart, he desired to see them face to face. Now, why do they have this kind of love? We, we need to ask that question. Why? Why is, why is Paul expressing this deep-seated love and desire to be there, to be arm in arm, shoulder in shoulder with these people? And we're going to skip verse 18 and come back to it in the next section because he answers the question why in verses 19 and 20. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? 
for you are our glory and joy. Do you know that I say this, if you're a regular attender here, member, been here a while, it's something I probably say at least a couple of times a year, that I consider, my family considers it, the great joy of our lives to pastor this place, to be, to be a part of you, this congregation here at Nansman River Baptist Church. But you know, that should not be an emotion that's just reserved for the lead pastor. It should not just be a sentiment that's reserved for our vocational pastors or our non-vocational pastors, our elder team. It should be a thought that is in every single one of our minds. What great hope and joy we find in being a part of this place. And Paul says it this way. He says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting when the Lord Jesus returns? So it's not just a present tense joy and hope and boasting. It's a future tense. Paul says, when the Lord returns, where am I going to find my greatest joy and hope and boasting? And he asks them this rhetorical question. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be great joy in the fact that you and I were here together on mission for God as a part of this church. This is what Paul is saying. That, that there will be some type of, I can't explain this fully folks, other than just to recognize it's what the apostle is affirming to be true and that we should recognize is also true. That there, we will find joy at the returning of Jesus in the fact that we were together. I have no idea what heaven's gonna be structured like. I can't tell you what it's gonna be structured like. Sometimes people wanna give me books on it and it's all, just about all of it is assumptions. So I don't get into assumptions a whole lot. I don't feel like they do us a whole lot of good. But let me just make one assumption. I don't know if this is gonna be true or not. But could it be that when, the, when our final place the new heaven and the new earth with Christ at the center is together. Could it be that this group of people is gonna somehow still be close to one another? That we're still gonna be in contact with one another? That maybe we're living on the same block together? I don't know. But there's gonna be great hope. There's gonna be great joy. There's gonna be great boasting, not in ourselves, but in the fact that we were together, loving one another because we are together in Love. Second, together in opposition, affliction, and faith. And these three things intermingle together, which is why they are a part of the same point. First, I want us to think about opposition and pull two verses together that are in different places of this passage. The first is verse 18, which we skipped in chapter two, where Paul writes, because he's writing about his desire to come to them. And he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. So he reemphasizes, I really want to be there face to face with you. But he says this, he gives the reason why he couldn't, but Satan hindered us. So there's one part of the opposition is that Satan was the hindering the mission of Paul's mission team. Now, not fully hindering it because he was still able to plant churches. He was still able to go from town to town, proclaim the gospel in the synagogues, see Jews and Gentiles alike come to faith in Jesus Christ. But along the way, there was great opposition. And Paul recognizes the source of that opposition as Satan and even says to this point, Satan had hindered him to where he was not able to 
returned. We don't know how that happened. We just recognize that it's truth from scripture that it did. Then if we skip down to the end of the passage we're considering this morning in verse five of chapter three, Paul writes, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now the tempter there is Satan. He's talking about the same person in chapter two, verse 18, that he is in chapter three, verse five. This is the enemy of the church, the enemy of God. Satan, the great tempter from the beginning who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, who has accused the saints of God for this whole time, who has sought to thwart, if it were possible, the mission of God in this world. And Paul writes about him twice in in this passage, once to say, he hindered us from coming to you, and then another time to say, when I could bear it no longer, I sent someone. The timeline of this is he sends Timothy, because they've not heard anything from from the Thessalonians. So he sends Timothy from Athens back there to receive word from him. And here was his fear. His fear was that they had spent so little time in that city developing the the disciples there in that place who professed faith in the gospel of Jesus that somehow Satan would have come in and snatched away their faith. And you're gonna ask this question then, is that possible? Is that possible? Is that something the enemy can do? Well, yes. We take these things together and I'm gonna be clear. I wanna show you where we see this in scripture, but let's first recognize something. We have to first recognize who our true enemy is because the world can't snatch our faith away. Oppression from the world, opposition, suffering that we talked about last week, we'll return to a little bit this week, will sometimes test our faith, but we have a real enemy. Paul in his letters to the Ephesians talks about this enemy. He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is Satan, is the tempter, same person. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Meaning it's not, it's not humans, it's not people that are out there that are our true enemy, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul squarely puts the enemy tag on spiritual opposition to the mission of God and his church. So we need to see that this is a real opposition to the church. Now, let's go back to that question. Is this what Paul writes about in verse five? Is that a real thing that can happen? Well, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter eight. And if I were to look back over my last six years here, there were probably two or three, I would say, uh, would have been maybe the most um, controversial sermons that I have preached. And one of them would be from Luke chapter eight. There were a few people who just really didn't like what I had to say from Luke chapter eight. And in truth, I really feel like I said what the Bible says. And I'm gonna say it again. Okay, here's what the Bible says. Jesus tells this story about a sower in a field. The sower in the field is out throwing out seeds. This was first century, right? Uh, Agricultural society. Everybody's familiar in that society with a sower in the field, throwing out seeds. And because the, the sower is somewhat indiscriminate with the seeds, they fall in various places. Some of them, and this whole story is in Luke chapter eight, some of them fall on the path. This is the place between the rows where people walk. And he says they get trampled on by foot and the birds of the air come and take them up. Some of them fall amongst the rocks 
And because they fall, fall amongst the rocks, the, shoil, the soil is really shallow. And because the soil is really shallow, they can't develop roots and they don't grow. Some of them fall amongst the thorns. And while they may grow up, the thorns will choke them out, right? But then some of the seeds fall on good soil. And because there's good soil and good moisture and deep soil, they're able to grow. And disciples come to Jesus in Luke chapter 8 and they're like, what in the world does this mean? And Jesus says... I'm going to give you some truth, okay? And this can be hard for us to hear. This is what Jesus says. Those first three seeds, the seed on the path, the seed on the rocks, and the seed in the thorns, while their challenge was different, none of them ultimately bore fruit, meaning none of them, in the metaphor, are actual Christians, None of them are of the faith. It may have looked like they were of the faith for a little while, but they weren't actually of the faith. It's only the seeds that fall on the good soil that bear fruit that are of the faith. Now, specifically, as we're thinking about the enemy, Satan, who opposes the church and the context of what Paul is saying in chapter three, verse five, about the tempter snatching away that faith. Let's read specifically about what Jesus says about the about the seed that falls on the path. He says, the one along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now I recognize this may be a difficult teaching for us, but here's what we need to understand. There are those who hear the word, who seem like they have believed the word, who seem as if they have believed the gospel, but the enemy tempts them away. That's the word that Paul uses there. It's an important word for us. This is how the enemy works. He tempts them away from the gospel. There's not true saving faith and they wander back into the world. And here's what Paul is worried about in verse five, because his time was so short in this city and now his absence has grown longer and he's not heard any word. Remember, this is before he sent Timothy. There, there's, not word, there's not been any word he says, I send Timothy to you just so I can know this hasn't happened. We need to together, I mean, this is a sermon about togetherness. We need together recognize that this is a possibility in our world. That there are people who will proclaim the gospel to who the tempter will then come in and try to steal it away. And here's what we need to do together. We need to stand against the enemy and say, no, <laughs> no, we're together in this and we're not going to allow that to happen to those whom we are proclaiming the gospel. But we're also together in affliction and faith. Look at those first four verses there of chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, right? So this is the timeline, he's sending Timothy. Our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were suffering affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Affliction and faith go hand in hand here for the apostle Paul. Here's what he, again, he's concerned. He grows concerned, so he's gonna send Timothy. And he sends Timothy to, to establish them, he says, and to exhort them in their what? In their faith. Why? Because they left them in affliction, knowing that affliction was going to continue. So knowing the suffering that we talked about last week was going to continue in their midst, here's what Paul says. I sent someone to be with you to build up your faith. 
I sent someone with you to build up your faith, to be there in suffering with you, and to provide for you the one resource you need to be able to stand in the midst of that affliction and suffering and opposition, and it is faith. You see, we can't will ourselves into this kind of resolve to stand against the enemy. We can't will ourselves to stand against the kind of oppression and opposition and suffering that this church was facing. Our only hope is together lean on our faith. The apostle Paul writes to uh, the church in Galatia, he says in chapter six, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens is to bear one another's affliction to bear one another's suffering. And, and we dealt with this last week, and so I just briefly mention it again today, that this is something we do together. We do this in community, recognizing that because we love one another, we bear one another's burdens. That's what he means, by the way, when he writes, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We don't often think about law and Christ, which is only, law of Christ only shows up twice in the New Testament writings. We don't often think of law and Christ, right? That Jesus ushered in, uh, a new covenant, the uh, covenant of grace. And so when, when Paul puts law of Christ together, you think, what in the world's going on? Well, very likely what Paul has in mind is, is the great commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ is that we love one another. And the law of Christ allows us to bear one another's burdens together increasing as Timothy did one another's faith so that we'll then be able to stand in the face of opposition, which is what Paul says to do in Ephesians 6, where he had identified who the true enemy was, right? It's not flesh and blood, but it's powers and principalities. It's the spirit of the air, right? It's Satan, the spiritual opposition to the church. That's our true enemy. And he's going to give some uh, the whole armor of God. He's gonna describe several pieces of it. Well, watch one of them. He says, in all circumstances, so not sometimes, but in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So put, these, put the teaching of Paul to, in Ephesians with the actions of Paul described in 1 Thessalonians. He's afraid of their affliction. He's afraid of the tempter. So he sends Timothy to together do what? Increase their faith. So what then is the answer to affliction and opposition? It's faith together. It's practicing our faith together. This is the answer. We don't have to have some mystic understanding of how we face down the tempter, how we face down Satan, how we deal with demons in our world. We don't have to have some type of mystic power encounter understanding of that. Here's how we do it. Together, we walk in faith. And by walking in faith, we can overcome any oppression. We can bear one another's affliction together because we love one another. So what? The gospel unity found in our love for one another should ever increase our commitment to the body and the mission. This should, I hope, be a message of great encouragement to you today. 
I hope you hear great joy that can be found in love for the brothers and sisters in the church. I hope you can hear the, the great responsibility that is being a part of a local congregation. And if you're not a part of a local congregation, if this is just something you come to every now and then, well, why not come and be a part of this great joy? Why not come be a part of this fantastic hope, this boasting in the Lord that we have together? Because we love one another. Do you need a place where you can be loved? You can find it here. Do you need a place where people will increase your faith because they love you? You'll find it here. Do you need a place where, where brothers and sisters in Christ will bear your burdens and your affliction and help you in oppression because they love you? You'll find it here. Because as we love one another, we are unified together in that thing that brought us together, the gospel. And because of that, it increases our commitment together. So I need to address something. And this is what I love about preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Is nobody can come to me afterwards and say, well, you just singled that out because of what's going on. No, I'm at that point in the text. So I want to answer a question for you. Let me start with a statement. And I recognize this has been a sermon of joy and it may sound a little harsh, but I want to be really clear about what I'm going to say. We spent a lot of money and time and investment almost 18 months ago when we went, had to close down. And we spent a lot of money on, that's what I told our, our tech team, because we didn't know what giving was gonna do. And so we shut down spending on just about everything in the church, except for that. I was like, whatever we gotta do, make that as good as it can possibly be. Because it was the only way you were gonna hear sermons. It was, it was just gonna be it for a little while. And we've continued it and we're going to continue it because it's a great resource for our church. It's a wonderful way for people who are moving into our area uh, it's a, to, to see our church. It's a great way for people who can't be here. Uh, we have homebound people that can't be here. We have people that are sick who can't be here. It's a great way for them to, to join us. But I wanna make this statement. I want you to hear me clearly. Online church is a poor substitute for being together. It is not the same thing. And I recognize there are people, again, because of another spike in coronavirus that have made the decision to not be here. And I, that, that, is, it, that is fine. I, I have not sat in judgment on other people's decisions over that for the last 18 months. I'm not going to start now, okay? But we need to understand, watching church on your TV screen is not the same as being here with the people you love. That desire that Paul had to be with them should be a real desire that we should all have. And if that is all you can do, either in the present moment or forever, I recognize we have homebound people who were probably watching this right now and may never come back into this room. And if that's all you can do, then I'm glad we could provide that for you. But the moment that you were able to be back shoulder to shoulder with the people of God, be here and prioritize being here. Because when we are together, we're able to increase one another's faith because we love one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author there warns us, he said, and let us consider how to stir one another up, look, in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
He looks forward to the return of Christ and he says, don't be distracted by all that is going on around you, but prioritize shoulder to shoulder ministry together. This is what we need to do, church. We need to prioritize our presence. We need to have that same kind of longing when we're away. And it, we're, we're all away. Listen, I'm away next Sunday. I don't normally tell you that. I'm not gonna be here next Sunday. My family's going on vacation. That's why I had a mask on today. I gotta pass a COVID test to go on a vacation, okay? So I'll try not to get COVID. So, but you'd be away. It's, it, it's, this is not to say 52 weeks out of the year you're here, you're a bad church member. But when I miss you on a Sunday, I often say this when I come back from vacation or a mission trip, when I miss you on a Sunday, man, we really miss you. And that Sunday we come back here, I am, I am overwhelmed with joy that I am back with you. Pastor Tony Evans, fantastic pastor, was asked the question, he says, I've often asked the question, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? And he's like, no, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian because salvation is through faith alone and Christ alone. But then he says, you also don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. We need to prioritize this moment right here, church, because it is right here that shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, face to face, no matter what is raging around our world, we are able to love and encourage and strengthen the brothers and sisters in Christ who are our great hope and joy. Now again, if you're watching with us online today, this is not an indictment of the decision that you've made because we, live, we are living in a very unique time. But my encouragement to you would be this, the very moment you feel like you can come back, come back. Don't get settled into church on the couch. I was talking with somebody just this week, the people are gonna come to our parenting conference in a couple of months. She asked, how's church doing? I said, well, we're, you know, we're back to 90 as much as even 100% of our 2019 attendance. We're back to that. I've had that conversation twice with people. And both times in the last week, I've had that conversation. People haven't believed me. I said, are you serious? Because that's not the case in a lot of places. Are you serious? I said, yeah. Why do you think that is? Because our people prioritize being together. Because we love each other. We want to be together. We recognize that being here, it's not about this building. It's about being together. So as we're together, we love one another. It increases our commitment to each other and to the mission that we are on to make disciples together. Let us love church. And as we love, let us be together. Let's pray for one another. God, thank you that you so equip us through your love that you showed us in Jesus to love one another. And then you equip us to increase the faith of one another so that when we encounter opposition and affliction, we build one another's faith by linking arms together. We thank you, God, for that great news, the love that you have for us. If someone in this room has never experienced your love, would they come to faith in Jesus today, believing unto salvation? And then let this church love them well and increase their faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.